Chapters 54, 55, 56, and 57 of Ruth Hall by Fanny Fern. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 54 What is it on the gate? Spell it, mother, said Katie, looking wistfully through the iron fence at the terraced banks, smoothly rolled gravel walks, plats of flowers, and grape-trellised arbors. What is it on the gate, mother? Insane hospital, dear, a place for crazy people. Want to walk round, ma'am? asked the gatekeeper, as Katie poked her little head in. Can, if you like. Little Katie's eyes pleaded eloquently. Flowers were to her another name for happiness, and Ruth passed in. I should like to live here, mamma, said Katie. Ruth shuddered, and pointed to a pale face pressed close against the grated window. Fair rose the building in its architectural proportions. The well-kept lawn was beautiful to the eye. But, alas, there was helpless age, whose only disease was too long a lease of life for greedy heirs. There, too, was the fragile wife, to whom love was breath, being, forgotten by the world and him in whose service her bloom had withered, insane, only in that her love had outlived his patience. "'Poor creatures!' exclaimed Ruth, as they peered out from one window after another. "'Have you many deaths here?' asked she of the gatekeeper. "'Some, ma'am. There is one corpse in the house now, a married lady, Mrs. Leon.' "'Good heavens!' exclaimed Ruth. "'My friend Mary!' "'Died yesterday, ma'am. Her husband left her here for her health while he went to Europe.' "'Can I see the superintendent?' asked Ruth. "'I must speak to him.' Ruth followed the gatekeeper up the ample steps into a wide hall, and from thence into a small parlour. After waiting what seemed to her an age of time, Mr. Tibbets, the superintendent, entered. He was a tall, handsome man, between forty and fifty, with a very imposing air and address. "'I am pained to learn,' said Ruth, "'that a friend of mine, Mrs. Leon, lies dead here.' "'Can I see the body?' "'Are you a relative of that lady?' asked Mr. Tibbets, with a keen glance at Ruth. "'No,' replied Ruth, "'but she was very dear to me. The last time I saw her, not many months since, she was in tolerable health. Has she been long with you, sir?' "'About two months,' replied Mr. Tibbets. "'She was hopelessly crazy, refused food entirely, so we were obliged to force it.' Her husband, who was an intimate friend of mine, left her under my care and went to the continent. A very fine man, Mr. Leon. Ruth did not feel inclined to respond to this remark, but repeated her request to see Mary. It is against the rules of our establishment to permit this to any but relatives, said Mr. Tibbets. I should esteem it a great favor if you would break through your rules in my case, replied Ruth. It will be a great consolation to me to have seen her once more. And her voice faltered. The appeal was made so gently, yet so firmly, that Mr. Tibbets reluctantly yielded. The matron of the establishment, Mrs. Bunce, whose advent was heralded by the clinking of a huge bunch of keys at her waist, soon after came in. Mrs. Bunce was gaunt, sallow, and bony, with restless, yellowish, glaring black eyes, very much resembling those of a cat in the dark. Her motions were quick, brisk, and angular, her voice loud, harsh, and wiry. 
Ruth felt an instantaneous aversion to her, which was not lessened by Mrs. Bunce asking, as they passed through the front parlor door, "'Fond of looking at corpses, ma'am. I've seen a great many in my day. I've laid out more than twenty people, first and last, with my own hands. Relation of Mrs. Leon's, perhaps,' she said, curiously peering under Ruth's bonnet. "'Ah, only a friend? This way, if you please, ma'am.' and on they went, through one corridor, then another, the massive doors swinging heavily, too, on their hinges, and fastening behind them as they closed. "'Hark!' said Ruth, with a quick, terrified look. "'What's that?' "'Oh, nothing,' replied the matron. "'Only a crazy woman in that room yonder, screaming for her child. Her husband ran away from her, and carried off her child with him, to spite her, and now she fancies every footstep she hears is his.' "'Visitors always think she screams awful. "'She can't harm you, ma'am,' said the matron, "'mistaking the cause of Ruth's shudder. "'For she is chained. "'She went to law about the child, "'and the law, you see, as it generally is, "'was on the man's side, and it just upset her. "'She's a sight of trouble to manage. "'If she was to catch sight of your little girl out there in the garden, "'she'd spring at her through them bars like a panther, "'but we don't have to whip her very often. "'Down here,' said the matron, taking the shuddering Ruth by the hand, and descending a flight of stone steps into a dark passageway. Tired, aren't you? Wait a bit, please, said Ruth, leaning against the stone wall, for her limbs were trembling so violently that she could scarcely bear her weight. Now, she said, after a pause, with a firmer voice and step, this way, said Mrs. Bunce, advancing toward a rough deal box which stood on a table in a niche of the cellar and setting a small lamp upon it. She didn't look no better than that, ma'am, for a long while before she died. Ruth gave one hurried glance at the corpse and buried her face in her hands. Well might she fail to recognize in that emaciated form, those sunken eyes and hollow cheeks, the beautiful Mary Leon. Well might she shudder, as the gibbering screams of the maniacs overhead echoed through the stillness of that cold, gloomy vault. "'Were you with her at the last?' asked Ruth of the matron, wiping away her tears. "'No,' replied she. "'The afternoon she died, she said, I want to be alone, and, not thinking her near her end, I took my work and sat just outside the door.' I looked in once, about half an hour after, but she lay quietly asleep with her cheek in her hand. So, by and by, I thought I would speak to her. So I went in, and saw her lying just as she did when I looked at her before. I spoke to her, but she did not answer me. She was dead, ma'am. Oh, how mournfully sounded in Ruth's ears those plaintive words, I want to be alone. Poor Mary, ay, better even in death alone than gazed at, by careless hireling eyes, since he who should have closed these drooping lids had wearied of her faded light. Did she speak of no one? asked Ruth. Mention no one? No. Yes, I recollect now that she said something about calling Ruth. I didn't pay any attention, for they don't know what they are saying, you know. She scribbled something, too, on a bit of paper. I found it under her pillow when I laid her out. I shouldn't wonder if it was in my pocket now. I haven't thought of it since. Ah, here it is, said Mrs. Bunce, as she handed the slip of paper to Ruth. It ran thus. I am not crazy, Ruth, no, no, but I shall be. The air of this place stifles me. 
I grow weaker, weaker. I cannot die here. For the love of heaven, dear Ruth, come and take me away. Only three mourners, a woman and two little girls, exclaimed a bystander, as Ruth followed Mary Leon to her long home. End of chapter 54 Chapter 55 the sudden change in Mrs. Skitty's matrimonial prospects necessitated Ruth to seek other quarters. With a view to still more rigid economy, she hired a room without board in the lower part of the city. Mrs. Waters, her new landlady, was one of that description of females whose vision is bounded by a mop, scrubbing brush, and dustpan, who repudiate rainy washing days, whose hearth, jowler on the stormiest nights would never venture near without a special permit and whose husband and children speak under their breath on baking and cleaning days mrs water styled herself a female physician she kept a sort of witch's cauldron constantly boiling over the fire in which seethed all sorts of mints and yarbs and from which issued what she called apothecary odor Mrs. Waters, when not engaged in stirring this cauldron, or in her various housekeeping duties, alternated her leisure in reading medical books, attending medical lectures, and fondling a pet skull, which lay on the kitchen dresser. Various little boxes of brown bread-looking pills ornamented the upper shelf, beside a row of little dropsical chunky junk bottles, whose labels would have puzzled the most erudit M.D. who ever received a diploma. Mrs. Waters felicitated herself on knowing how the outer and inner man of every son of Adam was put together, and considered the times decidedly out of joint, inasmuch that she, Mrs. Waters, had not been called upon by her country to fill some medical professorship. In person, Mrs. Waters was barber-polish and ramroddy, and her taste in dress, running mostly to stringy fabrics, assisted the bolstery impression she created. Her hands and wrists bore a strong resemblance to the yellow claws of defunct chickens, which children play scare with, about Thanksgiving time. Her feet were of turtle flatness, and her eyes, if you ever provoked a cat up to the bristling and scratching point, you may possibly form an idea of them. Mrs. Waters condescended to allow Ruth to keep the quart of milk and loaf of bread, which was to serve for her bill of fare for every day's three meals, on a swing-shelf in a corner of the cellar. As Ruth's room was at the top of the house, it was somewhat of a journey to travel up and down, and the weather was too warm to keep it upstairs. To her dismay she soon found that the cellar floor was generally more or less flooded with water, and the sudden change from the heated air of her attic to the dampness of the cellar brought on a racking cough, which soon told upon her health. Upon the first symptom of it, Mrs. Waters seized a box of pills and hurried to her room, assuring her that it was a sure cure and only three shillings a box. "'Thank you,' said Ruth, "'but it is my rule never to take medicine unless—oh, oh!' said Mrs. Waters, bridling up. "'I see. Unless it is ordered by a physician, you are going to say, perhaps you don't know that I am a physician, none the worse for being a female. I have investigated things. I have dissected several cats, and sent in an analysis of them to the medical journal. It has never been published, owing, probably, to the editor being out of town.' if you will take six of these pills every other night said the doctors laying the box on the table it will cure your cough 
"'It is only three shillings. "'I will take the money now or charge it in your bill.' Three shillings? "'Ruth was aghast. "'She might as well have asked her three dollars. "'If there was anything Ruth was afraid of, "'it was Mrs. Waters' style of woman. "'A loaded cannon or a regiment of dragoons "'would have had few terrors in comparison. "'But the music must be faced. "'So, hoping to avoid treading on her landlady's professional toes, "'Ruth said, "'I think I'll try first what dieting will do, Mrs. Waters.' The door instantly banged to with a crash as the owner and vendor of the pills passed out. The next day Mrs. Waters drew off a little superfluous feminine bile by announcing to Ruth, with a malignity worthy of her sex, that she forgot to mention when she let her lodgings that she should expect her to scour the stairs she traveled over at least once a week. End of chapter 55 Chapter 56 it was a sultry morning in July. Ruth had risen early, for her cough seemed more troublesome in a reclining posture. I wonder what that noise can be, she said to herself. Whirr, 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 it went, all day long in the attic overhead. She knew that Mrs. Waters had one other lodger besides herself, an elderly gentleman by the name of Bond, who cooked his own food, and whom she often met on the stairs, coming up with a pitcher of water, or a few eggs in a paper bag, or a pie that he had bought of Mr. Flake at the little black grocery shop at the corner. On these occasions he always stepped aside, and with a deferential bow waited for Ruth to pass him. He was a thin, spare man, slightly bent, his hair and whiskers curiously striped like a zebra, one lock being jet black, while the neighboring one was as distinct a white. His dress was plain, but very neat and tidy. He never seemed to have any business outdoors, as he stayed in his room all day, never leaving it at all till dark, when he paced up and down with his hands behind him before the house. Whirr, whirr, whirr! It was early sunrise, but Ruth had heard that odd noise for two hours at least. What could it mean? Just then a carrier passed on the other side of the street with the morning papers, and slipped one under the crack of the house door opposite. A thought! Why could not Ruth write for the papers? How very odd it had never occurred to her before. Yes, write for the papers. Why not? She remembered that while at boarding school, an editor of a paper in the same town used often to come in and take down her compositions in shorthand as she read them aloud, and transfer them to the columns of his paper. She certainly ought to write better now than she did when an inexperienced girl. She would begin that very night, but where, where to make a beginning? Who would publish her articles? How much would they pay her? To whom should she apply first? There was her brother, Hyacinth, now the prosperous editor of the Irving magazine. Oh, if he would only employ her! Ruth was quite sure she could write as well as some of his correspondents, whom he had praised with no niggardly pen. She would prepare samples to send immediately, announcing her intention, and offering them for his acceptance. This means of support would be so congenial, so absorbing. At the needle one's Ming could still be brooding over sorrowful thoughts. Ruth counted the days and hours impatiently as she waited for an answer. 
Hyacinth surely would not refuse her, when in almost every number of his magazine he was announcing some new contributor, or, if he could not employ her himself, he surely would be brotherly enough to point out to her someone of the many avenues so accessible to a man of extensive newspaperial and literary acquaintance. She would so gladly support herself, so cheerfully toil day and night, if need be, could she only win an independence." and Ruth recalled with a sigh Katie's last visit to her father, and then she rose and walked the floor in her impatience, and then, her restless spirit urging her on to her fate, she went again to the post-office to see if there were no letter. How long the clerk made her wait! Yes, there was a letter for her, and in her brother's handwriting, too. Oh, how long since she had seen it! Ruth heeded neither the jostling of the office boys, porters, or draymen, as she held out her eager hand for the letter. Thrusting it hastily in her pocket, she hurried in breathless haste back to her lodgings. The contents were as follows. "'I have looked over the pieces you sent me, Ruth. It is very evident that writing can never be your forte. You have no talent that way.' You may possibly be employed by some inferior newspapers, but be assured your articles never will be heard of out of your own little provincial city. For myself, I have plenty of contributors, nor do I know of any of my literary acquaintances who would employ you. I would advise you, therefore, to seek some unobtrusive employment. Your brother, Hyacinth Ellett. A bitter smile struggled with the hot tear that fell upon Ruth's cheek. I have tried the unobtrusive employment, said Ruth. The wages are six cents a day, Hyacinth. And again the bitter smile disfigured her gentle lip. No talent. At another tribunal than this I will appeal. Never be heard of out of my own little provincial city. The cold, contemptuous tone stung her. But they shall be heard of, and Ruth leaped to her feet. Sooner than he dreams of, too. I can do it. I feel it. I will do it. And she closed her lips firmly. But there will be a desperate struggle first. And she clasped her hands over her heart, as if it had already commenced. There will be scant meals and sleepless nights and weary days and a throbbing brow and an aching heart. There will be the chilling tone, the rude repulse. There will be ten backward steps to one forward. Pride must sleep. But and Ruth glanced at her children, it shall be done. They shall be proud of their mother. Hyacinths shall yet be proud to claim his sister. "'What is it, Mama? asked Katie, looking wonderingly at the strange expression of her mother's face. "'What is it, my darling?' And Ruth caught up the child with convulsive energy. "'What is it? Only that when you are a woman you shall remember this day, my little pet.' and as she kissed Katie's upturned brow, a bright spot burned on her cheek, and her eye glowed like a star. End of chapter 56 Chapter 57 "'Doctor,' said Mrs. Hall, "'put down that book, will you? I want to talk to you a bit. There you've sat these three hours without stirring, except to brush the flies off your nose, and my tongue actually aches keeping still.' said the doctor, running his forefinger along to guide his purblind eyes safely to the end of the paragraph. Shh, shh. It is estimated 
by Captain Smith that there are upwards of ten hundred human critters in the Norwest settlement. Well, Miss Hall, well, said the doctor, laying a faded ribbon mark between the leaves of the book and pushing his spectacles back on his forehead. What's to pay now? What do you want of me? I've a great mind as ever I had to eat, said the old lady pettishly, to knit twice round the heel of this stocking before I answer you. What do you think I care about, Captain Smith? Travelers always lie. It is a part of their trade, and if they don't, it's neither here nor there to me. I wish that book was in the Red Sea. I thought you didn't want it read, retorted the irritating old doctor. Now I suppose you call that funny, said the old lady. I call it simply ridiculous for a man of your years to play on words in such a frivolous manner. What I was going to say was this. If I can't get a chance to say it, if you have given up all idea of getting Harry's children, I haven't. And now is the time to apply for Katie again, for, according to all accounts, Ruth is getting along poorly enough. How did you hear? asked the doctor. Why, my milliner, Miss Tifkins, has a nephew who tends in a little grocery shop near where Ruth boards, and he says that she buys a smaller loaf every time she comes to the store, and that the milkman told him that she took only a pint of milk a day of him now. Then Katie has not been well, and what she did for doctors and medicines is best known to herself. She's so independent that she never would complain if she had to eat paving stones. The best way to get the child will be to ask her here on a visit, and say we want to cure her up a little with country air. You understand? That will throw dust in Ruth's eyes, and then we will take our own time about letting her go back, you know. Miss Tifkin says, her nephew says, that people who come into the grocery shop are very curious to know who Ruth is, and old Mr. Flake, who keeps it, says that it wouldn't hurt her any, if she is a lady, to stop and talk a little, like the rest of his customers. He says, too, that her children are as closed-mouthed as their mother, for when he just asked Katie what business her father used to do, and what supported them now he was dead, and if they lived all the time on bread and milk, and a few such little questions, Katie answered, Mama does not allow me to talk to strangers, and went out of the shop with her loaf of bread as dignified as a little duchess. Like a mother, like child, said the doctor, proud and poor, proud and poor, that tells the whole story. Well, shall I write to Ruth, Miss Hall, about Katie? No, said the old lady. Let me manage that. You will upset the whole business if you do. I've a plan in my head, and tomorrow, after breakfast, I'll take the old chase and go in after Katie. In pursuance of this plan, the old lady, on the following day, climbed up into an old-fashioned chase, and turned the steady old horse's nose in the direction of the city, jerking at the reins and clucking and geeing him up, after the usual awkward fashion of sexagenarian female drivers. Using Miss Tifkin's landmark, the little black grocery shop, for a guide-board, she soon discovered Ruth's abode, and so well did she play her part in commiserating Ruth's misfortunes and Katie's sickly appearance that the widow's kind heart was immediately tortured with the most unnecessary self-reproaches which prepared the way for an acceptance of her invitation for Katie for a week or two, great promises, meanwhile being held out to the child of a little pony to ride and various other tempting lures of the same kind. 
Still, little Katie hesitated, clinging tightly to her mother's dress and looking, with her clear, searching eyes, into her grandmother's face in a way that would have embarrassed a less artful maneuverer. The old lady understood the glance and put it on file, to be attended to at her leisure, it being no part of her present errand to play the unamiable. Little Katie, finally won over, consented to make the visit, and the old chase was again set in motion for home. End of chapter 57